Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for an excursion into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. Your hosts this evening are myself, I'm Gene Turnbow, the station manager here at Krypton Radio, and Susan Fox, our executive producer. Good evening, or morning. Our guest this evening is... Sherry Priest, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sherry, Sherry. Uh, author, <laughs> author of Fiddlehead from Tor Books, the fifth book in the Clockwork Century series. The first book in the series was Bone Shaker, which came out in 2009. And uh, when it did, it was nominated for a Hugo, a Nebula, and a Locus Award, and it won the Locus Award. Welcome to the show, Sherry Priest. It's, oh, it's great to have you on. I'm, I'm so tickled you guessed my name right on the first try. Usually people assume Cherie, and I just don't correct them. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it looks French. so It does. People think it it yeah, does. You know. you know, my mom was named Sharon, and my dad is Jerry, and I think they just kind of smashed the names together. I hope <laughs> no one noticed. So they spelled it Cherie. So this is this is the fifth book in the series, and you weren't, no. and, so, and you weren't with uh, Tor Books when you started. What was the... No, I, I was. Yes. You were. Uh, I was. Bone Shaker was published under Tor Books as well. Correct. Oh, that's... Oh, and that was a good read. What an oh, adventure. I had such a good time <laughs> with it. Yeah, I saw the, uh, I saw the book cover for, for uh, Bone Shaker, and I remember being very impressed by the, uh, by the art that, uh, that they got you for the book. For the book yeah, that was, um, that was John Foster. He, he did uh, just a phenomenal, and he, he also did a Dreadnought and Ganymede, though I'm led to understand that he retired, and uh, the subsequent books have been done by Cliff Nielsen, although Clementine, which was a novella that we did through Subterranean, set in the same universe, he also did that cover as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, he's, he's fantastic, and, and I, if I ever get a chance to meet that man, he drinks for free. That's it's the long and short of that. <laughs> really did an amazing job, and and the art people there at Tor, uh, Irene Gallo is the head of the art department out there. I'm not, um, I don't have at my fingertips uh, the person who did the interior design, but there are maps and there's there's all kinds of fun stuff in these books. So you've been uh, obviously it took you uh, it took you time to get up to the point where you'd be working with Tor books. Where did you where did you start out? Uh, for legal reasons, I have to be careful about how I answer that question. Oh. <laughs> I see. Now I'm intrigued, but I don't uh, suppose you can really. Bone Shaker was my seventh novel. She, 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 and, she could tell us, but she'd have to kill us. Fifth with Tor. Uh huh. It, it was it was my fifth with Tor, and at the time, honestly, I thought it was going to be the last one I did. I was kind of in a series death spiral. Is the colloquialism for that? 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I did this series basically of you know I see dead people uh, in the South, mm-hmm. and they were lots of fun. And I really loved them, and they were set in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and nobody cared. Nobody, nobody cared at all. Um, and then I had they, they they did sign me to two more books, and one was called Fathom, and then the last one was set to be uh, kind of a vampire, like a modern noir vampire story. It was basically mm-hmm. going to be Red Harvest by Dash Hammett, kind of retold with vampires in Seattle, mm-hmm. and it was called Awaken to Darkness, and it was a lot of fun. But um, after Fathom, I mean, it was very clear that I wasn't selling. Not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, I could have sold more copies of Fathom out of like a trench coat in the park, frankly. Oh, good um, heavens! And, and yeah. th- this is a surprise because oh, uh, Bone Shaker, Bone Shaker received such critical acclaim. It, it did, and no one was more surprised than me. Let me tell you that. Um, but what happened was, um, I, I the way publishing works, it's it's really a lot easier to be a new author with um, an absolutely unknown sales history than it is to be an established author with a crappy one. And what a lot of people do is they just kind of reboot under another name. Uh-huh. And I honestly thought after Fathom that I was probably going to have to do that. I thought that probably Awaken to Darkness was going to be the last book I wrote under my own name. And, and I started noodling around with something on the side. And I, I had lived in Seattle for a couple of years at that time. Um, we left Tennessee, my husband and I. He took a job with uh, Amazon Corporate, so mm-hmm. we ended up in Seattle. I've been there for a couple of years, and I thought, you know, maybe I could tell a, a Seattle story, because I well, was. Well, you sure I was, did. Why, thank you. Um, I mean, I was kind of an army brat, and I moved around a lot as a kid, and I like to set stories places where I've been that I think are interesting, and and that kind of collided with me running into some uh, really adorable English steampunks online who are complaining about how all these American steampunks are really just posers, because obviously you can't tell a steampunk story unless it's set in Victorian England. And, I mean, and, and let well, me be clear. That hardly seems fair. It, yeah, it hardly seems fair. It doesn't. But and, and to be clear, I think it's a wonderful place to set steampunk as Victorian England. But I don't think it's mm-hmm. the only place. And so I kind of got noodling on the side with this idea for a steampunk story that was very distinctly American. Mm-hmm. And I talked about it online a little bit. And my editor Liz Garinsky over at Tor, she, she's amazing. Uh, kind of, we, we got chatting about it, and she was like, "Well, why don't you send me what you've got? I'm curious." And I, I was like, well, you know, they're not going to let you buy it. I mean, I, I'm such a, you know, a market pariah at this point. They're, you know, Tor's not going to let you acquire this book. But she was like, please, let me, let me look. So I gave it to her, and she proposed that we swap out Bone Shaker for the other book at the end of my contract. And she was like, I really think that the time is right for this instead of the other one, and I really think that that, that this is a lot stronger than the material I've seen. Let's let's do this instead. And she personally, I mean, just spearheaded everything that came after. She got these early advanced bound manuscripts out. I mean, we ca- we called in every favor, every Hail Mary pass of everybody I knew in the industry. Just please, will you take a look at this? You know, tell us if you like it. Um, and the early word back was really good on it. Uh, we, we had a lot of industry professionals saying really wonderful things about it, and we were really excited about it. But Really, um, the reception of Bone Shaker, or at least certainly the launch of it, had everything to do with my editor there, and uh, and her reaction to it, and and then all of a sudden I had written Bone Shaker, and I I want to say it was within a month we had gone into a third printing. Oh my! And it wow. was I think we're up to eleven now. <laughs> 
And it's been translated into, I want to say, nine languages across, like, you know, 10 or 11 countries. Uh-huh. And, and, and I mean, <laughs> literally. That's, that's, that's where you, you start questioning as to whether or not you've had sort of a, a trans-dimensional, exactly. you've fallen through a trans-dimensional rift and you're in the wrong universe now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, and, when you and, have that kind of success. Yeah, but you yeah, know what? I'll really, keep this universe. That's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. Exactly. I, I think I like this universe better. I accept this universe, <laughs> and I, I, I amend it to my own reality. <laughs> but kind of this idea that everybody talked about me being an overnight success, but realistically, I'd been writing books for ten years. This was my seventh book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, every overnight success. And I was like, years well, I'll, yeah, I'll take it. You know, shoot. <laughs> yes, I will take whatever success you want to throw my way at this point. But I mean, quite literally, if I had been really industrious, I could have sold more copies of my previous book out of like the trunk of my car. Oh gosh. I mean, it was it was it, these were those kinds of numbers, and then all of a sudden, Bone Shaker happened, and it, but it was the last book I was under contract for. Uh huh. So, and we kind of didn't know where to go from there. And because I'd written it sort of as a one-off, and I ended it on, on a somewhat ambiguous note, because like I said, I didn't know if I was going to get to write more or not. Um, the early buzz came back so good from so many people that Tor decided to kind of hedge its bets. And, and rightly so. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. honestly, I was not a good bet at that point. Right. <laughs> the fact yeah. that they took well, a chance on me speaks very well of them. <laughs> it does. Um, and it, I'm I'm very pleased that they did. I mean, it, it's... it's uh, it's rare enough that uh, that you get, you know, that anybody gets second chances or or has somebody on the other side who just stands up yeah. for you and believes in you. And and that was my editor and my agent. Between the pair of them, they are, they are my 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 Avengers, my super friends. They really are. And so even before the book came out, they decided to go ahead and tie me down to a second one, which was going to be Dreadnought. But like I said, the, I mean, Bone Shaker hadn't even come out yet, and so. I, I kind of decided at that time that we were going to do a series of these books. If, if they all had to be related, I didn't want to do sequels because I had had a hard time mm-hmm. with the series Spiral in the past, you know? I was like, I want them to all be in the same world with some of the same characters, but I would like for it to be the kind of thing where somebody could pick up one in the middle and still understand what's going on. And I really wanted it to be my disc world, you know, uh, Terry Pratchett. I like, know, uh-huh. just what you mean. Yeah. In the middle, and, and there's a lot of stuff that will be more meaningful to you if you've read the rest of them, but you can still, you know, hop right in kind of wherever. And that's what I really wanted to do. And I hope that through the rest of the books, that's what we've done. And um, Clementine, which is the one off through Subterranean, I had originally pitched as a sequel to Bone Shaker. And it, it, like I said, I mean, Tor was going above and beyond even to sign me to, to Dreadnought eventually. Um, but before that happened and before they weren't really sure... They were like, well, we're, we're going to wait and see how this goes, which, again, was totally fair. But I had worked with Subterranean before, and they were like, well, give it to us. And I thought, well, you know, as opposed to it never coming out, that, that would be cool. And But the, I have a first refusal clause in my contract with Tor. Uh-huh. And I want to say it's like at 50, anything over 50,000 words, that kind of deal, and which is why Clementine comes in at like... 48,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, 49, right, right. Right, that kind of thing, you know. So so I did, and so sometimes people ask why Clementine is so short. Well, well, that's why. And it was originally <laughs> proposed as the sequel. How curious. But then when Tor did come back and won a sequel, they, they I didn't, I had already sold that one. Mm-hmm. But by then the big piece of feedback kind of disguised as complaint is how I choose to look at it. Ooh. Um was was people wanted to see if, if I had this extended civil war, like what it looked like across the rest of the country. 
And so I propose Dreadnought is kind of a travelogue. I mean, it's an adventure story, mm-hmm. but, but the vehicle character starts out in Richmond, Virginia, and ends up in Tacoma, Washington. So you get to go across the entire country, including the unincorporated territories, and see what the war has done. And um, so, and, and then it just kind of went on from there. And you well, kind Seattle of to... wasn't unincorporated. Uh... No, the Washington territories were not incorporated at that time. No, which kind of works into Bone Shaker in that after the big industrial accident that destroys Seattle. Um, the Washington Territory's resident appeal for statehood, but because the Civil War is still going on in this universe, basically they're ignored. They're, I mean, there's no union for them to join at this point. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of hoping for federal money to help bail them out of this big, massive disaster, and it just doesn't come. It doesn't happen. And I, and in real life, obviously, the, the terminus of, of the railroad ended up at Tacoma, not at Seattle anyway. And so when the railroad ends out there, everybody just writes off Seattle as, as uh, you know abandoned and dead. But clearly, it's not, and and it was it was a lot of fun to work with. I use a lot of Seattle's real history in it, and every now and again, I'll get you know emails from students who've been dragged on the Seattle Underground tour. And I was oh about to I was about to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh my God, Princess Angeline was a real person. Yep, yep, she was. She didn't die until the twentieth century. She lived to be a very old woman. And, tell, and us about, later, tell us about tell us about Princess person? Angeline. Yeah, oh, she's awesome. And you know what I found out, like, via Bone Shaker? Teenage boys love Princess Angeline. I had no idea. But apparently she's super big with a teenage boy demographic, um, <laughs> which was one reason we did an Explicables, where she's basically the primary adult contact with the boys. But Oh, that's that's um, that's wonderful. Yeah, it, How it cool. was. How cool. It was really cool. And her father was a real person. Her father was Chief Seattle. Um, I mean, his name was, I can't pronounce it and would not attempt to mangle it, you know, but... But it was anglicized to Seattle, and, he, and she was his daughter. And she stayed in the territory, and allegedly she haunts the Pike Place Market, which is a real place. And the Smith Tower is a real place. And, and, and you know, Maynard is kind of loosely based on a real character whose name was also Maynard. And, and it was just so much fun to play with. And once in a while, I'll get email from kids who've been, like, dragged on the underground tour as part of a school trip. And like, oh, my God, I didn't know. That's like, awesome. Yeah. Have fun with your local history. That's where all the weird stuff is, kids. <laughs> yeah, that is where all the weird stuff is. Well, you know, for, you know, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction is required to make sense. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, nothing that I could possibly make up is going to be half so weird as anything that has actually happened. I mean, come on. Uh, the example I tend to use for that is actually Clementine. Um, in, in the really real world, uh, there was this woman in the in the 19th century uh, who everyone called Madame Damnable, and her, her <laughs> name, I like that. Oh yes, and at one point she may well have been the wealthiest woman west of the Mississippi. Uh, she 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 did exactly what it sounds like she did. Uh, she went around this this enormous brothel, and I want to say her real name was like Mary Brown or something really boring like that. But everyone called her Madame Damnable, and. Mm. Um, when she died around the turn of the century, she was buried downtown in Seattle. And, and then a few years later, they started relocating those old pioneer cemeteries, they called them, to this place called um, Lakeview, which is on top of Capitol Hill. And it was because property values were rising downtown, basically, and they wanted to get the cemeteries out of the way. So when they got to Madame Damnable's grave, they, uh, for some reason, couldn't get her coffin out of the ground. And, and they hook up a couple of draft horses and eventually... They heave the thing out of the earth and come to find out she was buried under a mineral drip. Her body had calcified and weighed nearly 3,000 pounds. Oh, my God. Right. Wow. I I know. Like, I could make that up, right? So 
what ended up happening in, in real life was they, they dragged her up what was then Denny Hill and has since been regraded. It's been regraded. I think it's still Denny Hill, but this was before the regrade. Um, they dragged her up Denny Hill and buried her six inches over the new property line for the cemetery because they were not dragging her happy ass one more foot. <laughs> I have been she to sort her of grave. made her own monument, didn't she? She really did. And, and I've <laughs> been to her grave and, and I've stood in front of it and, you know, pour one out for my homie. Because um, she was a badass in every way, and but that was only like one of two really awesome things she did after she died. The other thing she did, she there's left a her phrase entire... you don't. It's a phrase you don't hear every day. It's things not, she you know, did after she died. After she died, right? <laughs> no, but when she died, um, she had been extremely wealthy, but not married and had no legal heirs and children. She left her estate to the founding of the King County Public School System. Oh my. Because girls were not being taught to read, and if you were going to be one of her ladies, you needed to at least read English, Spanish, and French. And it was important to her that girls have the opportunity for education. And so, you know, Seattle, which is in King County, their public school system was partially founded with the estate of this woman. And I mean, like, I could make that up, right? <laughs> That's amazing. You know? <laughs> so, in my version of things, she was buried wearing this enormous diamond, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, like, like, like I said, like I could make that up. And I mean, once in a while I get email from people going, well, this was just one step too far. This was just too crazy. And inevitably the stuff that readers are complaining about is the stuff I took from real life. It's, it's <laughs> always the real stuff that people think is just too insane. So let's talk about uh, the, the newest book. The newest book, Fiddlehead, yes. Fiddlehead. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I uh, Computers absolutely love the idea of 1880s computers. Yes, that's that's a that's a treat to start with. Oh, I mean, you're talking Charles Babbage and the Difference Engine. Oh yes, you know, not that terrible. Charles Babbage and, and the the Difference Engine. Uh, Charles Babbage designed. Uh, okay. He never he never right, got was to see one. Built, oh no, well, it wasn't built in his time. It has been built no, now. Models have been built since. Yes. Yeah, working yes. models have been built since, and they do function exactly right. as designed. Yeah, but the computer but, age would have started a century sooner if if he had. That's the thing. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, and the uh, Doctor Bardsley had used, in, in I, the eighteen eighties. Yeah, the the uh, um, uh, Doctor. What's his his first name? Gideon. 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 Gideon Bardsley, which I think is a wonderful character name. First of all, it it recalls, you know, it recalls um, the the publisher of Bibles. You know. <laughs> I actually got an email from a guy named Gideon Bardsley who wanted to know. Really where I amazing. And I was like, I, I am so sorry, sir. I literally, you know what I did, like, to come up with a lot of the names for this? I looked at 19th century politicians uh -huh. uh, from the Southern Confederate Congress and uh, the Union Congress around the same area. And I just kind of, like, mixed and matched various assorted names. I had no idea there was a real living man named Gideon Bardsley who was going to write me an email. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something of a shock. It was a little bit. To get an email from a character that she'd created. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and, uh, and and then the other, the last name Bartsley, you know, he's, uh, as a central character in, in all of this, Bartsley sounds significant, you know, as in he's it, a storyteller. And I totally didn't mean for it to. It was literally just the last name of somebody I had grabbed who was a 19th century congressman or senator mm -hmm. or something. I don't even remember now. I mean, it, do keep in mind, I wrote this like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 uh, uh, and he's a black man, a scientist. Yeah. Yes, he's he's, he's a black scientist, a former slave, a former slave, who uh -huh. uh, ultimately uh, sort of scholarshiped his way out of slavery and then bought freedom for his family. His family, yes. yes. And uh, so he's got uh, uh, 
this whole thing is happening. Uh, the the sequence of events are happening around um, uh, around him and yeah, two presidents. Yeah, around him, him and, and two presidents, and the and the Civil War, mm-hmm. and Abraham well, it, Abraham it, Lincoln, who did no. not die. <laughs> no, he did not die. No, and and again, it's like but he came close. All you have to do to, to have your alternate history is just to tweak one little silly thing. Um, and then it all cascades from there. And, and it cascades, it does. I mean, in, in real life, uh, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency had been serving as private security to the presidential force for years. And in fact, they thwarted, almost certainly, I'll, I'll go ahead and qualify that, they almost certainly thwarted one assassination attempt against Lincoln. Uh, they were disbanded and the Secret Service was established and a few months later, Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater. So in in my version of things, he kept the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons did thwart the assassination attempt, but he was badly injured. So he retires from, from politics. And in real life, in 1880, Ulysses S. Grant was being urged very strongly, kind of against his own wishes, to run for a third presidential term mm-hmm. that he didn't really want. And just just kind of the, the, the conflagration of these events. And, and say you throw... A machine into it where I've I've had like the, the creeping zombie threat. <laughs> mm-hmm. was, the word zombie is is I know it was like thrown in at the end, but you knew, you know. Everybody it is. Let me if you've read the other books, you know. I mean, th- mm-hmm. there's a disease and there's a drug that is doing horrible things to people, and it's not a southern issue, it's not a northern issue, and and basically, the, the thrust of this uh, of this is, you know, he feeds all of these um, facts and figures into, the mach- into this machine that he's invented, and it's like Doctor Bardsley's. You know, computative something or another, something or another, in the, in the grand tradition of long Victorian names. But Mary Todd Lincoln said something like, well, that's, that's a device that'll really fiddle with a man's head. And so its code name became the Fiddlehead. So, he, he, so there are no ferns involved. So they can no actually fiddles. describe it in conversation instead of, you know, yeah, having so you to read this litany of... You no, know, instead of referring to the calculating device or whatever. Um, so he plugs all the numbers in, and he basically figures out that if the war doesn't end like yesterday... You know, whatever this creeping menace is, like neither the North nor the South is going to win. You know, the undead are basically going to win. But, but the problem is, there are a lot of people who make a lot of money on the war, and there are a lot of people who don't want to hear that. And so he becomes a target. And and, and the the person who's brought in to deal with it, the Pinkerton agent. Oh yes, Maria Boyd. Yeah, Maria Boyd. Who was she a real person? She was a real person. Oh, cool. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping awesome. to hear that. She was totally a real person. In, in, in real life, kind of her short story was, uh, she was a teenager when the war was underway. Um, her actual birth date is a little foggy, depending on who you ask. Um, a lady's generally it, is. <laughs> it, she was probably about 15 when uh, the Yankees came to the family homestead and overtook it as, as an outpost. That she, she lived in Northern Virginia. And uh, according to lore... Uh, a Yankee officer indecently assaulted her mother, so she shot him to death. That's fair. It, right, and, and, but, but the problem then arises, and I mean, even the other Union officers were like, he kind of had that coming. Yeah. But you couldn't just say, well, little girl, you're allowed to shoot, you know, pe- okay. But at the same time, there were no prisons for women at the time that they could send her to. Certainly no prisoners, like for prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. And so basically what so they the did alternative was, they, was to either let her go or put her to death or exile her. Right. So what they did was they slapped her on the wrist and said, now don't you do that again, young lady. And what <laughs> she took away from that, from, as, as only a rich white girl can come away from that, she came away from it saying, they can't touch me. 
and she went to spy for, uh, she, she was involved in a fairly pivotal battle with Stonewall Jackson at one point, uh, passing information back and forth, and, and she became incredibly famous. They called her the, mod- or the Cleopatra of the Confederacy. And, oh, my. Oh, yes. And the problem was, by the end of the war, she was too famous to spy. That's an issue. That, that that came up. Uh, that came up hurry, probably right. in the conversations in the first chapter. And she, um, by the end of the war, she had been, if I if I remember correctly, and again, I've had some cold medicine. I'm sorry. It's we've got the plague over it's here. Okay. Right now. Yeah, um, we understand. She that. had been left at the altar, widowed, um, may or may not have been divorced, uh, had been interred in several POW camps, and engaged several times to several different people. And uh, by the time the war was over, she was about 19. Like, all of this crazy stuff had happened to this teenage girl. And, and kind of what I wondered about that was, well, at the, you know, what does this woman look like at 35? You know, it, when, when she's been too famous to spy for years. And in real life, what happened was, I mean, she nearly starved. Um, her family fortune was wiped out in the war, and she took up acting, uh, may or may not have t- taken up prostitution at some point. And partly it was just because she was so famous, there was kind of nothing she could do. And this was due in part, at least, to uh, the Union newspapers getting hold of a picture of her, at which point it got ugly because she may have had the finest turned ankle on that side of the Mississippi, but as uh, I believe one Union paper put it, she had a face that could stop a clock. Oh, that's uh a problem. She was not a pretty woman. She was not an attractive woman, but she had an amazing body. And, and it, it was very Scarlett O'Hara. It was the first line of Gone with the Wind. You know, Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but nobody ever seemed to notice something like that. Right. It, it was very that with Maria Boyd. She was not beautiful, and yet no one ever noticed. And she was a very successful spy. She was a very successful femme fatale. Um, but then when the war was over, uh, her marriage had been to a Union Navy boy who died uh, coming back from England, I believe. And so her, her loyalties are kind of called in question. Mm-hmm. And... She's a widow and a teenager, and the well, and this are... and these loyalties being called into question uh, uh, puts her diametrically at odds right. I mean, with Gideon, Gideon Bardsley. You know, you know and, and you've so, got you've got a really you your first well, chapter exactly, sets up. They're not buddies. They're not buddies they're not at all. They're not friends, and they're not going to be friends. Um, in in Clementine, which does happen before this and features her, she ends up making friends with a guy named Crowley Bogart Haney, who, who turns up later on in this book. And I, there was some concern when I did this from some reviewers, like, well, I have some issues with the idea that this, uh, you know, Southern woman who's been taken on as an agent with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency uh, is now, like, befriending and maybe even, like, quasi-romantically involved with this runaway slave. And that, that really wasn't it at all. Um, no, not indeed. Not I'm, even I mean, a little. I, I, I'm acutely aware Believe me, just painfully aware of, of of the the dynamics of that, and I would like to think at the end of Clementine that she and Haney realized that they could have been friends. Like like in another world, in another place, these are two people who could have been friends, and they have to settle for respecting one another as, as professionals. So you don't know that coming into Fiddlehead, and when she's confronted mm-hmm. with this other with another black man, which is brought up you know early, early on. Um, she brings a lot of baggage to it. He brings a lot of baggage to it. This isn't going to turn into one of those adorable things where one or the other saves the day and sacrifices. This isn't it. That's not how that works. In best case scenario, these people will come out of this with a grudging mutual respect. They're not going to be buddies. So 
kind of in, in this alternate universe where this goes on, in, in real life, again, uh, Alan Pinkerton, who formed the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, was a Scot who was a former Union operative himself. And after the war, especially after the Secret Service was formed, they got a lot of bad PR for a lot of reasons, many of them valid, and they say this is someone who lives in the southern end of Appalachia. Um, but I liked the idea of one old spy looking at another old spy and seeing the value and bringing them on board. Yeah, that made sense, didn't it? So, so Alan Pinkerton was in fact a real person, and Maria Boyd was a real person, and obviously Lincoln and Grant were real people. Um, I think mostly the rest of it is made up. <laughs> I don't think I actually brought anybody else uh, from real history into Fiddlehead, but but, uh, but a lot but, of them could have. But in the case know? of Maria, I mean, it's you used a lot of her history. Well, it, well, I did, it, but you know what? I simplified it because I mean, even after Clementine, I got people going. Well, this woman is obviously like your feminist answer to history, and you've obviously made her, you know, you've imbued her with these twenty-first century sentiments and whatever. No, no, no. I, I toned it down. I took out one of the engagements and like, you know, like I left a bunch of stuff out because I thought nobody would believe it. And even what I left in, people didn't believe. And how ironic is that? Yeah, I, well, it's, it's half the fun of this stuff. Like I said, when I can point to it and go, no, it was real. At least I have an out, you know. Um, so that was kind of the fun of doing her. And and I'm, I am a Southern woman. I'm from the Gulf Coast. I've moved around a lot, yes, but I, you know, I've made my home in Tennessee. And and Grant is a problematic figure here, and it was. But the more I read about him, the more interesting he was, and like the the more. I mean, it, it was very clear to me that, that that he was a very brilliant man who was not a brilliant politician, but he was smart enough to know he needed po people who were better at politics than he was, if they were going to make him president. And the problem was, he brought on a bunch of people who were better at politics than he was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He kind of ended up running the show, you know, uh -huh. and. His 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 regime, for lack of a better word, his presidential you know terms or you know it goes down in history as one of the most corrupt. But but by everything I read about the guy, like he personally had a lot of strong convictions and 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 worked very very hard for civil rights, especially in the wake of the Civil War. He 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 lobbied vigorously and not always to success for the rights of black people in the South in particular. And, and there's a story told about him where when he was still quite young before he was, you know, a famous union general, he and his wife were broke and their kids were starving and he sent her to live with her family, um, even though he had inherited some slaves from a family member. And if he had sold them, he could have supported his family for a couple of years and he set them free instead. Because on principle, he did not agree with this and he did not believe in this. And he, he, just, and, and he was an alcoholic and he had a lot of mm -hmm. terrible post-traumatic stress issues. That, that's, that's yeah, that's the the that alcoholism is the is the is the part of him that uh, that school childrens yeah, are, are most aware of. Yeah, I mean, he he he's kind of notorious. But, but uh, most of the rest of that is not something that. is not stuff that uh, that you're generally taught in school. Mostly, it's all yeah, about his battles. And I was like, what a neat guy. And you know what? You know what? I'll, I didn't actually work this into the book, but this is also true and so weird. Um, he knew he was dying toward the end. He died of some kind of of throat or mouth cancer. And um, he knew he was dying before kind of anybody else did, really. Mm -hmm. And so he starts writing his memoirs really, really quickly. And e even now it goes down in history as, like, one of the best war memoirs ever compiled. I mean, like, you know, you ask anybody, it's, it's, it's amazingly well done and sharp and well recollected. And it was ultimately published by Bart Twain. Huh. 
he produced it before, right, but shortly before he died, because basically Grant was afraid that his wife was going to be left, you know, functionally penniless, except for whatever they were willing to, you know, mm, military pension or whatever. Right. And so he he hurried up and he wrote all this stuff down, and it was it was published by, by Mark Twain by Samuel Clemens, and uh, kind of as a, as a personal favor. And there was like so much interesting history to this stuff that again is so much weirder than anything I could make up, and and it all kind of came to a head with this, and and I wanted to, I I, I play with loyalties a lot as well. I mean, I'm a, I am a, a feminist liberal southerner, so I have my own loyalty it issue. Looks like you bet you bet you're lonely. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I realize that's the perception side of the South, but not at all. Um, but but it does certainly appear that way, and so. It was it was important and interesting to, to present people with complex loyalties and complex divisions in 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 their uh, in the thing in their objectives. I mean, uh, Mercy Lynch from Dreadnought is a Confederate woman who is widowed of a of a Union soldier, even though he was from Kentucky, not a hundred miles away from her. Hmm. So technically, she's a Southerner working out of a Confederate hospital in Richmond, but she's collecting a Union pension on her dead husband. And so when she travels, that makes things both easier and more difficult for her. Depends and where she's traveling. It, well, she was heading west. So it's, it, especially here in the border states like Tennessee and Kentucky and Virginia and whatnot, you ran into a lot of people with a lot of very divided loyalties. I mean, my own family, in my, in my mom's family, I'm probably misremembering part of this, but they, they sent, if I remember correctly, seven sons to the Confederacy and six sons to the Union and got, I think, three back from the Union and two back from the Confederacy. Oh my. I mean, it, it was literally, not not even in, in a metaphysical sense, this, this was brother against brother, this was family against family, and especially here where the borders are so close, it was really, really complicated for people, especially for poor people who couldn't read and write and mm -hmm. were sent, you know, basically as cannon fodder, and I mean, and, and I used that to kind of extend the war because in uh, New York in the 1860s there were draft riots because, you know, the Irish and German and Italian immigrants were being pulled off the boats and thrown on the front line. And amazingly, people object to that. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, hard to believe. So yeah. much like the poor white people in the South objected to being sent to war to protect property that wasn't theirs, whether it was actual land or whether it was slaves, and they only had kind of a vague idea of what it was anyway. And, and obviously that is not true across the board. But there was enough of it that it, it was it was it was not nearly as as clear cut as uh, as as history likes to remember it, or as people even now like to think of it outside of the South. Um, to, to slightly segue, I do a lot of events in Detroit. I love Detroit, and if I could handle the weather, I'd live there in a heartbeat. And a lot of people from Detroit do a lot of Southern events and fandom. And I honestly do think it's because if you get outside of Detroit. People have opinions about Detroit. <laughs> they think they know how to fix Detroit, and they're going to tell you all the stuff you ought to do to fix Detroit. Like and they know. Yeah, they like don't they know, know anything. Yeah. No, I, they don't. The last but time, the last time I was in Detroit was, uh, I think, uh, geez, twenty-three years ago now. Right, and you and know. I mean, Subterranean's based out of there, and I do a lot of work with them, and I come and go usually several times a year. Um, but you get outside of the South, and you run into the same thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they know what you're about. They think they know you, and they think they know everybody you know, and and they think they know how to fix it. And I, I think there's this weird solidarity right now in the 21st century. And it, 
I say all that to say this. There was an awful lot of very bad and very complicated history, and I didn't want to gloss over any of that. But I wanted to make it as complicated and bad and strange as it actually was, not as people want to think it was, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's um, one of the one of the things that drives the interaction of the people of that time is that um, you know you you travel fifty miles in any particular direction, and your sphere of knowledge, the quality of the knowledge that you have, uh, degrades immensely. Oh yeah, I mean, and it's there are reasons for that then and now that that, that are absolutely worth talking about, but. And, and I started thinking about it with regards, I mean, because let's be real, you know, I, I did Bone Shaker kind of on the back of the idea that the Civil War had gone on for 20 years. And that was easy to do because the Pacific Northwest, not a lot of Civil War action, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I could kind of say whatever. Yeah, the ramifications and, weren't yeah. as deep as they they were on the other side right. of the country. And but, but when I went in to do Dreadnought, I needed to actually sit down and go, okay, well, why would this have happened? And if it did, what would that mean? So it's like, well, what if the South had a better transportation infrastructure? You know, what if, what if the Transcontinental Railroad hadn't taken the northern path to Tacoma, but had gone the southern path that ended out in California? Um, what if Jackson had survived? Because the South did not have very many good military minds. They were too based on this weird class-based system that, like, oh, well, you're the son of a rich man. You can't possibly be an infantry. We're going to make you a, an officer. And that was just completely boneheaded. Mm-hmm. Um but the handful of good people they did have, they tended to lose. So what if Jackson was still alive? What if, what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? And sometimes people ask me why I didn't bring up Texas and Bone Shaker, and the fact is I just hadn't thought of it yet. But I thought, <laughs> you know, what would have really saved the South is if, well, first of all, if England had stayed involved and then given them a navy because they didn't have one, and otherwise if they had, like, a really powerful ally... And I, I grew up in southeast Texas, not terribly far from Beaumont. I mean, they, they discovered oil at Spindle, at Spindle Top, you know, and uh-huh. I, I went ahead and just moved that up about 20 years. I was like, well, okay, what if Texas discovered oil a little sooner? What if, what if Texas Instruments becomes like an actual thing, <laughs> you know? What if, what if they have this powerful technological ally? And this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Because in real life, in the real world, the South lost the war when they declared it. It was completely idiotic. I mean, they they picked a fight with a bigger, richer, better fortified, more populous nation while they were simultaneously trying to police a slave class. It's the veritable definition of of, of, a bad idea. I mean, bad ideas. Fighting, fight, essentially fighting a war on two fronts. You know, like Napoleon had done. Absolutely. Except one of them was internal, and one of them, you know, they they were they already had one conflict going. And then they went out and picked another fight. And it was just, it was ridiculous. And so I, I, contrary to some of the early reviews on Dreadnought, I had no intention of like, you know, rewriting history so that the South won the war. I'm not Harry Turtle loving here, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I wanted an ex, a series of excuses that would have allowed the South to hang on that long. And I, I, I hope that it's clear from the books anyway that it, the, the books take place on the very cusp of what is sustainable. The war can't possibly go on too much longer. I mean, at the beginning of Bone Shaker, the war can't possibly go on too much longer. And by Fiddlehead, it ends. It does end. Uh, we, we, you know, no, we, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Well, no, I mean, I talk about it online all the time. No, in the end, you get the courthouse moment, and, and it's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, courthouse so, moment. That, so that, well, yeah, you that's, know. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Can you elaborate on that? 
Well, where they signed the treaty and everything, the courthouse. Oh, oh okay. Courthouse had, moment. I see what right, you're saying. Right, and kept it in. Um, at Appomattox Courthouse. Um, so I went ahead and, and, and left that in, but it's just down the line and everything unfolds the way you know it, it can and should. But it's kind of playing with that back and forth, especially, and, and I read a lot about um, uh, the way things go in countries where wars have been multi-generational. Because at this point, if the war's been going on for 20 years, this is a multi-generational war. Yes, it is. The, the, you have an entire generation of children who've grown up literally not knowing anything else and knowing from the time they're five or six years old that someday they're going to war. And and what that does to people and, and how nations that are uh, close geographically navigate that. And there's a lot of back and forth between the borders, whether people want to talk about that or not. And so anyway, the whole thing was just really fascinating to me. And I mean, realistically, I, I, because I'm from the Gulf Coast, I grew up mostly in mm -hmm. Florida, Texas, and ended up living in Kentucky and Tennessee. We're like, I mean, let's be real, alternate theories of the Civil War are kind of a regional pastime. <laughs> so uh -huh. it was kind of easy for me to like kind of, oh, well, you guys think if the South had won here, well, then they would have, okay, well, you guys think that if they had held on here, or if they hadn't, you know, allowed this to go, then, then they could have done this and this and this. Well, all right, well, let's play with all that. How would that have ever played out? And I'm, I am no historian, and I will be the absolute first person to tell you. you that could have fooled me. I mean, right, if yeah, you're yeah. not a historian, you're doing a pretty good impersonation <laughs> of one at this point. I'm an enthusiast. Um, but, but as I, try, I put at the beginning of the book, starting with, uh, I think, Dreadnought, like, if you're a huge stickler for historic accuracy, these are not the books for you. Well, because you know? it's, hello, it's fiction. <laughs> it's alternate universe. You can do it. You would think it would occur to people before they hit the zombies. Uh huh. Like, I get emails from people who are furious Zombies. with the way I handled the Robertson Hospital in 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 Richmond, Virginia. Um, it read right past the zombies and the Utah right. Pass, and they thought that was just fine. Uh huh. But, but the fact that I had Sally Louisa Tompkins meeting Clara Barton, clearly that just took them right out of the story. <laughs> it's like, what did you? Yes, did you? Did you miss? Did you miss? Brains. Right <laughs> and you thought that was fine. Or in, in actually, after the year or two after Bone Shaker was the worst, because in Seattle, I used a bunch of stuff that um, it hadn't been built at the time. In, in real mm -hmm. life, what happened was in uh, around uh, 1890, 1889, 1890, I forget which exactly, uh, Seattle burned to the ground. And oh, yes, so the pretty big much Seattle all of the stuff that's fire, in Seattle yes. right now was built, almost entirely all of it was built from 1890 onward. Mm -hmm. So I used a lot of the buildings from the 1890s uh, in Bone Shaker, but I specifically said in an afterward, like, look, in my universe, the fire never happened, and history kind of moved up with the Klondike Gold Rush. So let's just pretend that some of these things might have happened anyway. They just happened sooner. I still get emails from people who are furious that I use the Smith Tower or the Pike Place Market. And I'm like, you had no problem with me walling off your city and filling it with poisonous gas and zombies and your outrage. <laughs> yeah, that's a correct. Outrage yeah, yeah. by the fact that the Pike Place Market appears and it didn't, it wasn't established until, what, 1907, something like that. And my husband when said that I start throwing, a, hmm? When did they start throwing fish? Uh, I don't know. The market was established in 19, I'm pretty sure 1907. Uh, but because uh, it was its 100th, 100th year anniversary or something shortly before we got there. I do not know when the fish throwing actually came. <laughs> but uh, no, it always kills me when people do that. It's like you, you read right past the zombies. You were at <laughs> peace with the zombies. You were okay with this. 
brains. You were okay with it. But <laughs> the fact that I put this in. Oh, I'm, some of the email. I actually used to save some of the hate mail. It was Some of it was just so funny. But <laughs> I, I restrained myself now. I got this one really great one from some dude who sends me like three paragraphs about all the things he liked about the book. But then was all, however, then you, you revealed your ignorance to me when you did X, Y, Z, P, D, and Q. And now, now my suspension of disbelief has been shattered. And okay. So like he signs okay, the thing, like, Oh, I know. It was great. He signs the thing, you know, Bob Smith or whatever, signed someone who could have been a great fan and now never shall be. Oh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Don't let the door very, hit you on the ass on the way out. Very sad <laughs> Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord switch you. Call it a day, honey. So, so in the subsequent books, you know, I, I have my disclaimers like, look, these are not historical fiction. And yeah. if you're a big, if you're a stitch counter for that, save us both with some grief and just go read something else. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is not going to make this you happy. This is, hello, fiction. It's yeah. a novel, not, uh, yes. Not a yeah, but once in a oh. while, I would get, like, I got this That's really funny. great email from somebody out of Utah once. Um, who lived near Provo, the, the pass where like the big train battle happens in, in Dreadnought, who, who sends me this really thoughtful email like, well, you know, you've given so much work, uh, so much thought to your alternate history. Uh, I'm sure you've thought about this already, but since it didn't come up in the book, I'm going to go ahead and ask, how did the various railroad companies navigate the contract so that they could each run a set of tracks through the Provo Pass? Because in real life in the 19th century, that was a huge legal battle that was fraught with, I, okay, I had no idea. I saw Provo on a map and was like, that looks like about the right place. So I set my mountain pass there. And sure enough, that is sure exactly enough, where. That's exactly where. Apparently this huge legal battle um, took place. I had no idea. And I felt bad. And I was well, just and like. It, and it shows that you're, you know, you have enough mastery over uh, <laughs> over, over the, the, the knowledge of the, the history of, and the situation that you can draw the same conclusions that uh, that that history did. They yeah, brought their the... airships in and dropped bombs on them. No, I think I told the reader that a wizard did it. <laughs> I think that was my conclusion. I was like, I have no idea. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but what's she gonna do? You know. So, uh, what are you working on now? What's the well, What's right the next now. thing after? After, uh, um, let me think. Uh, it, I mean, I'm working on several projects, but the way the, the wheels of publishing turn so slowly. Boy, I think so. So next is sort of a relative term. Next is a relative term. I think the next thing coming out from me is going to be a project called Maple Croft. It's going to be out through either Ace or Rock, you know, it, like Ace Rock. It's mm -hmm. a Penguin Random House company. Uh, I believe. Uh, end of September, maybe November of next year, called Maplecroft. And uh, you want the low pitch or the high pitch? Oh. Any. Okay, all right. Low pitch. Oh, let's get the. Let's take the low one because that's going to take. Pitch. That's going to have oh. the more meat. It's going to be fun. Uh, it's Lizzie Borden fighting Cthulhu with an axe. <laughs> oh yes. High pitch. It's it's actually a love letter to Dracula told in a 19th century epistolary novel uh, uh, via Lovecraft. So it's, it, it is a 19th century epistolary novel. And basically Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 wax, you know, or mother 40 wax. Right. No, she did, they were turning into Lovecraftian fish people and they were going to kill her and eat her. So she really had no choice. 
Um, <laughs> well, have have you ever heard Evan Brooks' uh, Hey There Cthulhu? No. Song. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. We play that on the yeah, station. Look at it. We play it on the station yeah. sometimes. Or look it up you on could YouTube. Look, Google it on, on YouTube. Ebon you will Brooks. never be able to listen to Hey, hey There, there Delilah yes. again. <laughs> it will ruin the song for you forever. I love it. Hey There yeah. Cthulhu. Hey There Cthulhu. If there's ever a movie, we'll suggest it for the trailer. You know, that, oh, there we go. <laughs> it's one of the one of the advantages of running like the world's only general sci-fi radio station is you get to know all these crazy people and hear no, all I, this insane music. I, no, I hear you, and and sometimes people ask like you know what you do for a living. You know what what's cool about that? Well, for one thing, I go to work in my pajamas, and for another, I meet just the most amazing people. <laughs> I really do. And. It, it never ceases to amaze me some of some of the really really amazing people who have, who have uh, I've encountered and who have been supportive and and, and I love that. But you know, I, I think Maplecroft is I, technically the next thing slated. I'm also doing uh, another like I said another novella that's kind of loosely set in the Clockwork Century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Jacaranda. I think it'll be out next winter. Do you I'm find sure do you find novellas easier to pitch than than novels these days, or yeah, no, is it the other way around? You know what? I I have worked with Subterranean before. And I really, really love them. They're one of the a super fine indie press. I, I cannot recommend them enough. And um, the, the publisher, like Bill, is, is, is a friend of mine, and we were talking about this sort of thing. I've done a couple other projects for him, and he's like, well, you know, it's been since, like, 2009, since you did anything for us, what you got going. And I had been noodling together this story that, well, I'll put it this way. I was approached about doing a set of comics based on the Clockwork Century stuff, and that didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. That's um, But the stories I pulled together I really liked, and so I kind of threw them at him, and, and he asked if I wanted to do them you know, in prose form. And so I'm really excited about it. But it will be loosely tied to this universe, but I think it's coming out in winter. So I think Maplecroft is the next thing. And I'm just, honestly, I'm just ridiculously excited about it. It's an idea I'd had banging around for probably five or six years, and kind of one of those things that I just I didn't have I, I, I didn't have the personal chops I didn't have the wherewithal really to tackle uh-huh. it until kind of this stage in my career and now I just I hope to God everybody likes it it likes it even half so much as I enjoyed writing it well and if they if they so like it if they like the books half as much as we've enjoyed talking to you this evening oh, I'm, you. Sure, I'm sure <laughs> you're going to do very I very well did indeed tell you I was a bottle rocket of nonsense you give me one question <laughs> and I'll give you like 30 minutes of content just in one ridiculous well, thank goodness that means I didn't have to think <laughs> it, may, it Wait, sure made it easy I'll tell you <laughs> You have been listening to episode 39 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 23rd, 2013. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio station manager Gene Turnbow and executive producer Susan Fox. Our guest this week has been Cherry Priest, author of Fiddlehead, the last book in the highly acclaimed Clockwork Century series of novels published by Tor Books, which is the Macmillan Publishing science fiction imprint. This episode will air again on Sunday, November 24th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the kryptonradio.com website and on both iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. 
The Navigator was played by Corsair's Closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.